Good morning. Beautiful, beautiful day. Uh, yesterday was uh, very beautiful as well, um, and it was a wonderful um, wedding ceremony uh, with uh, Callie and Evan. Uh, so glad to, to be there to celebrate with them, um, and we're sure they're having a great time right now. Um, and speaking of great times, uh, I'm about to have one. Some of you may know my eldest daughter, Patricia, <clears throat> is uh, having a baby, and so uh, sometime early next week is uh, the timetable anyway. And so um, uh, we will be heading down to South Carolina, Lord willing, right after I preach next week. So should the baby come a little bit sooner, uh, Eric's going to pitch it for me, and, and then we'll come back and conclude our series in Daniel the week after that. Uh, it has been a fantastic series so far. I hope you've been plugged into a life group where you've been able to process uh, the truth of God's Word together. Um, and this morning, um, you're going to need to put your thinking caps on. Uh, but I've got some good news for you. And when I began uh, studying this passage uh, weeks ago, uh, I began to, to think, how in the world am I going to be able to finish it in a day? Well, guess what? I'm not. Um, so um, you will be happy to know. If I, By the way, curious, a little survey. How many of you actually have gone ahead and read chapter 7? Anybody here? A few? Wow, great, fantastic. Um, so you know what we're up against this morning. This is a very challenging passage of Scripture. My introduction this morning is going to be a lot longer than normal, but I think it's necessary for us. And for that reason, uh, we're only going to cover the first eight verses here. So uh, even when we get to the rest of the chapter, it's still going to be a challenge to try to cram it all in into a single message, but I will um, do my my best. Um, but let's uh, commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word that you have given to us whereby we might come to know you and love you and desire to serve you. And so we pray that you would encourage us through the teaching of your word. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and our guide here this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Rise of the Beasts. Sounds like a movie title, doesn't it? I was just trying to think, you know, of all the different movies that kind of have that title in there, you know, The Rise of Skywalker, Rise of the Lycans. I'm sure there are, there are other ones, but I love this idea, Rise of the Beasts. That could be the title to chapter 7 here in the book of Daniel. And this morning, we enter the world of apocalyptic literature. Now, the word apocalypse comes from the Greek word uh, whereby we translate it revelation. And it is a genre of literature that employs the use of dreams and visions and interpretations. Um, and because much of the literature deals with catastrophic events at the end of human history, uh, the word apocalypse has kind of come to uh, mean disaster or catastrophe, or if you prefer, Armageddon. But there's so much more to apocalyptic literature than just that. In it, we learn about the nature and the character of God. We learn about our redemption and our redeemer. Uh, 
In it, we see that God is sovereign over all the nations of the earth. And one day, through his son, he will defeat all of his enemies, establish his kingdom, and liberate his people. If you want to condense all that into a single statement, I suppose it would be this. In the end, God wins, and so do we. Former pastor and uh, professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, Dale Davis, said this about apocalyptic literature. He said, I would say that biblical apocalyptic is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people despised and cast off by the world with a vision of the God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. And it communicates this message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. Alistair Begg adds to that that apocalyptic writing is literary shock treatment. It is a genre to be used in an emergency. It is employed in the Bible, including in the second half of the book of Daniel, when the drama is so perplexing and so overwhelming that what needs to be said cannot be encapsulated by normal mechanisms of addressing or describing life. God employs apocalyptic language in order to express that which falls outside the normal boundaries of the use of language. I think that's very helpful for us as we begin to look at chapter 7. And there are two equal but opposite errors that we can fall into when we're studying this type of language. The first is simply to avoid it, to avoid teaching on it especially. And a lot of people tend to do that. It's, it's, it's complicated. It's hard. It's mysterious. Um, it's, not, it's not like the first six chapters of Daniel, which was biographical. It was narrative. It was story. This is apocalyptic literature. The second error that we can fall into is to have an unhealthy preoccupation with it. And we can go to either of those two extremes. We can spend so much time trying to decipher mysteries, looking for hidden meanings, and then devising fanciful inter interpretations. If ever we need to remember the maxim, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things, it's here in the book of Daniel. And for this reason, we must be very careful that we don't go beyond what Scripture clearly teaches. And we must resist the temptation um, to try to uncover secrets, to unlock these mysteries. There is more than enough in Scripture for us to, to spend our entire lives seeking to obey God. There, there's so much in Scripture that God has revealed to us that he wants us to know that is abundantly clear that sometimes we race right over that in order 
to deal with these obscure, difficult passages of Scripture when we would be better served obeying what it is that we know, what God has clearly revealed to us. So trying to unlock... Um, you know, these types of mysteries is problematic for several reasons. I'm going to give you four here this morning. Maybe one of these will resonate with you. First of all, it's problematic because it assumes something of God that is wrong. It assumes that God is keeping secrets from us. That God is withholding information and it's our job to try to figure it out. That kind of thinking is wrong-headed. It, it, it assumes that God is holding back from us, that he's being capricious with us, kind of dangling out there a little bit of truth so that we can kind of see it. And, and right when we feel like we're able to grasp it, he yanks it away and we got to go further with it. It's almost as if God is playing a, a game of spiritual you know, hide-and-seek with us. You have to remember what... Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy when he wrote, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. We should be content with that. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do all the words of the law. God is more interested in our obedience obedience to his word with the clear commands of scripture than he is in us trying to unravel the mysteries of God. The truth is, God is, was not and is not obligated to tell us anything. I mean, think about that. God was not obligated to tell us anything about himself, but he has chosen to communicate with us, to tell us what he wants us to know. He has communicated to us through natural revelation, which is basically uh, by, through the use of our five senses, that we can see and know things about God simply by looking at the created world and the order and the stars and the oceans and the mountains. We can learn so much through natural revelation. But he's also given us special revelation where we by come to know things about God that we would not have otherwise known unless God supernaturally revealed them to us in a special way, primarily through God's word. But as the writer of Hebrews says, that long ago, many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So God spoke through the prophets. God spoke through his miraculous works. He has spoken to us most clearly through his son. And I don't know if you ever thought about it, but another fact that God desires to communicate to us comes from the very fact that the New Testament was written in what is known as Koine Greek. Koine Greek was the language of the common people. It wasn't the highfalutin ancient Greek or Latin. 
It was the language that was spoken by the people and most easily understood by them. I love what Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. He says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. If that verse is true, and I believe that it is, then I think it is a futile act of pride for us to think that we can know that which is unknowable, unsearchable, and unfathomable. I mean, that's what Paul tells us, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable his ways. If that's true, I mean, both things can't be true. If we can figure out the unsearchable, unfathomable things of God, we would, by definition, be God. If God wanted us to know every detail of apocalyptic visions, he would have told us. He has told us what he wants us to know, and he has made clear to us um, that he doesn't want us chasing, running down after spiritual rabbit trails. That's just the first reason why I think it's problematic. Second reason why it's problematic, uh, problematic to try to uncover uh, or unlock obscure prophetic visions is that we are spiritually nearsighted. Um, we tend to filter everything through the here and the now. We are limited by our paltry existence upon the earth. You know, our 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years of life. We tend to view all of human history through the lens of our experiences, through the lens of our knowledge. And most of us, sadly, do not have a good grasp of history. We, we just don't know what has gone on before and what has happened. We fail to understand, for instance, that many antichrists have come and gone, and many more will come before the antichrist makes his grand entrance. We, we tend to interpret the Bible through our understanding of current events which is akin to interpreting scripture by our, our experiences and our feelings. And it ought to be the other way around. Third reason why it's problematic, and this is probably the one that's most concerning to me as a pastor, is that I think it is a diversion from following Christ. We think that we are students and lovers of God's word when we are in fact ignoring the God of the word. Think about that for a minute. You, you can think that you are a student of the word, a lover of, of God, and yet all the while possibly being ignoring him. God, God has given us his word so that we might know him and love him and desire to serve him and become like him. And I think we are so easily led astray from that, even by good things. That's why Paul's words to the Corinthians have always haunted me. When he wrote, he says, I am afraid, 
Keep in mind, he's writing to the church. He says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That is always a danger for us as believers, and specifically for those of us um, who uh, love to engage God in his word. That's a danger for us. Alistair Begg, in his book, Brave by Faith, uh, said this. The second half of the book of Daniel, beginning in chapter 7, is not included in the Bible just so that we can argue about exact timings and enjoy trying to work out what each image corresponds to in history, but never actually derive anything helpful for real life from it. No, the point of these chapters is to make clear that contrary to appearances, God is on the throne and the future is securely in his hands. I think we're going to see that as we go through this text. And I'll give you one more uh, reason why this pursuit is problematic, is that I think we can run the risk of becoming modern-day Gnostics. For those of you who've been in the church for a while, you, you kind of know what Gnosticism is and what it means to be a Gnostic. Those who, who claim special knowledge those who claim to know something that nobody else knows. And when you think you know something that nobody else knows, that you have uncovered some hidden truth, that, you know, for some reason you were able to uh, figure out, um, it's easy to become prideful. It's easy to become arrogant. And what does the scripture say? It says, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes arrogant. So I think these, these are just four reasons. There are more, but these are just four reasons I came up with that kind of talk about those two opposite errors, the ignoring it versus the unhealthy occupation with it. So with having said all of that, let me give you a little disclaimer. I am not an expert on end times prophecy. I'm not sure there is such a thing. Um, experts in, in anything. Um, so I'm going to endeavor to try um, to avoid what Alistair Begg refers to as being a spiritual sleuth or a spiritual Sherlock Holmes. I'm going to try to keep things as close to the vest as possible as we look at chapter 7 uh, because I want us to see the big picture because that's what I think God wants us to see, the big picture. And the whole reason for chapter 7, and for that matter, the whole book of Daniel, is to encourage God's people with the fact that no matter how bad things get, God is still in control. God is still sovereign. And in the end, he wins. And if he wins, we win. That's what he wants us to know. So let's look at Daniel chapter 7. Uh, as you turn to it, um, I, let me mention that unlike chapters 2 and chapter 4, where Daniel um, interprets the vision of another, here... 
Daniel is the recipient of a dream or a vision. And for the first time in the book, he doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't know what it means. He can't interpret it, so he needs someone to interpret it for him. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, by the way, last week my wife told me I mispronounced it. I kept calling him Belteshazzar, which was actually Daniel's name. They're so close together. So if I mess it up this week, no why. All right. So uh, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now Daniel provides for us a historical marker here in the very first verse. Um, we first met Belshazzar in chapter five, if you remember. And by the end of the chapter, He's dead. He's killed as the Medo-Persian Empire comes into Babylon that very night and kills him. Therefore, these visions that we're, we're looking at here in chapter 7 do not flow chronologically after chapter 6 because in chapter 6, Darius is reigning. So these visions actually occur in the first year of Bel Belshazzar. And Daniel would have been in his mid-60s at that point. And fortunately for the exiles and for us, Daniel had the wherewithal to write down his dream and its interpretation for us. And the vision will be expanded upon in later chapters, but uh, that's not the scope of, of our study in Daniel. So I, I just want to encourage you, once we're done, go ahead, read the rest of the book of Daniel. Hopefully what we talk about here in the next couple of weeks on Daniel, Daniel 7 will help you to understand more fully the rest of the book. And chapter 7 ends um, in a glorious way with the hopeful expectancy of the coming kingdom of God. So let's just jump right in. Verse 2, we're going to be talking about rise of the beasts. And Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this, I looked and beheld another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. 
After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and it had great iron teeth, and it devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is the use of, of simile. Daniel doesn't see a lion and a bear and a leopard. He, he says these are like it. He, he says in, you know, uh, the first was like a lion. It was like a bear, like a leopard. The, the, Daniel is trying to describe what he sees, and these were the closest approximations to what it is that he saw. Sinclair Ferguson said this, that what we have here is essentially a book of pictures appealing to our senses. We are meant to see, hear, and smell the strange beasts that appear throughout this chapter. We are meant to be overwhelmed as Daniel was. And there's a lot of imagery here. First, you, you see the four winds of heaven in verse 2, which represent uh, the four compass points of north, south, east, and west. And it illustrates God's sovereignty because the winds blow from heaven, from every direction. And it's telling us that all nature, even the wind, is obedient to God's commands. The sea is frequently used in Scripture to describe humanity. The Old Test in the Old Testament, um, the sea is often symbolic of turmoil and chaos, especially in regards to the world. And here, it clearly represents rebellion against God. And this idea that the four winds were stirring up, the four winds from heaven were stirring up the great sea is symbolic of the raging chaos and turmoil and confusion and conflict that is in the world. But even so, God's hand is in it. It's, it's God who is stirring up the waters and causing these beasts to arise. Even these terrible beasts are under God's authority. And that coming out of the sea simply means that they arise from the human race. They are from the earth as opposed to heaven, as verse 17 says. Now, historically, biblical scholars have largely been in agreement as to what these beasts represent or who these beasts represent. There are some minor differences here and there, but historically speaking, uh, they've largely been in, in agreement. And they appear to be the same empires that are revealed um, through Daniel's interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. 
They represent different aspects of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. So the first is, is that we have the lion with uh, eagle's wings. This represents the Babylonian Empire. And I, and I should say, even as I say that, this represents, might be too dogmatic. We believe the evidence points to the fact that, that this is what the dream, the vision uh, relates to. That the Babylonian Empire is the lion with the eagle's wings. Now, why do we believe that? There are several reasons. I, I can only give you a few here. Uh, first of all, Babylon used this symbol to represent itself as an empire. The lion with eagle wings was a representative. It was a symbol that they used to describe themselves. They felt that they were a fierce nation, a swift nation that conquered quickly. Um, it's not unusual because even today, you know, I mean, the United States is symbolized by what? An eagle. Okay. Aren't you glad Benjamin Franklin didn't have his way? It would have been a turkey, but it's an eagle. Um, England is a lion. Russia is what? A bear, yeah. So it's, it, it's very, uh, very common for nations um, to, in, in a sense, it's almost a form of idolatry in a sense because you're picking these, it, I'm gonna, I'll get off tangent if I start talking about totems, but basically the idea is, is that they see a trait within themselves reflected in an animal, and so the animal becomes a symbol of that nation or that country. Now, if you look biblically, you, you don't have to go any further than Jeremiah or Ezekiel because Jeremiah and Ezekiel both compare Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of Babylon um, to that of an eagle and a lion. But notice it says that its, its wings were plucked off. I think that's a fitting description of what happens in chapter 4 because Babylon lost its king. <laughs> its king was taken from them. And the kingdom was torn away from Nebuchadnezzar and he was made to dwell like an animal for a time. And then you come to where it says, lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. Seems to create, give you that picture that, that the time of his animal-like existence was over that he recovered. It goes on to say is that a mind of man was given to it, so his reason returned to him. Sounds very much like what happened to Nebuchadnezzar after he repented. So that's the lion with the eagle's wings. Then we come to the second creature, the second beast, and that is the bear. And here we see that it was raised up on one side. There's a few interpretations of this, but the one that seems to make the most sense is that it's likely a reference to the fact that within the Medo-Persian Empire, there was one part of this alliance that was stronger than another. The Persians were stronger than the Medes. And 
it had three ribs in his mouth. Boy, there's some fanciful interpretations of that. Three ribs in its mouth. It could, it could simply refer to the three major conquests of the Persian, Medo, Medo-Persian Empire, and that was they conquered the Lydian kingdom, the kingdom of Lydia, in 546 BC, the Chaldean Empire, the Babylonians, in 539, and then the kingdom of Egypt in 525 BC. It's also possible that the three ribs in the mouth might just mean that it's hungry. That it had an insatiable appetite to devour everything uh, that it came in contact with. Um, it had an insatiable appetite for conquest, that it devoured the nations. Now, I know some of you chuckled at that, but um, John Calvin held that view, as did many other people, as do many other people. So do you see why we need humility here? I mean, if you have godly men who for centuries can't agree on what all of this means, we need to be very careful about making dogmatic statements. So then we come to the leopard with the four wings. Now, leopards are fast. Faster than lions, faster than bears. But add to that four wings. Not two wings, four wings. And you have a creature of amazing swiftness. And this image seems to best fit the Greek empire under the leadership of Alexander the Great who conquered uh, most of the known world in an amazingly short period of time. In about 10 years, he conquered all of Greece. He conquered Egypt. He conquered the Middle East. He conquered um, all of Persia. He, he conquered all the way to India in about 10 years. And he was only 32 years of age. Remarkably swift. Notice that it says, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Well, in the scriptures, heads often refers to uh, authority. It, all, it refers to rulers or governments. Uh, if you remember back in Daniel uh, chapter 2, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar he was what? The head of gold. And we know from history that upon his death in 323 B.C., Alexander's empire was divided into four kingdoms amongst his generals. And notice that dominion was given to it. God is sovereign over the nations. He gives dominion to whom he wills to accomplish his purposes in the world. And it is fascinating to think about how God used these kingdoms to bring about his purposes. But that really is a message for another day. And now we come to the last beast, the terrifying beast with 10 horns. This fourth beast is the most terrifying beast of them all. It is like no other. It is powerful, frightful, and it can't be likened to any known animal. Notice Daniel doesn't ascribe any likeness to it. He, he can't come up with it. And there are lots of other frightful animals he could have come up with. 
but he can't. He, he just doesn't have a description for it. Now, in ancient times, horns um, were, were emblematic of power. You see that in a lot of uh, uh, paintings and sculpture um, from uh, the ancient world. Uh, you can read about it in Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel, Psalms, all over the place. But um, uh, horns were symbolic or emblematic of power. Now, I was racking my brain trying to think about this, but except for unicorns, most have two. I thought maybe a rhino, but then I said, doesn't a rhino have a little small one coming to here and the big one? So I can't think of another one. But, but most if not all, have two horns, those that have horns. Um, if you happen to know one that doesn't, let me know so I can use it in the second service. Um, this beast has ten. Ten horns. So if horns represent power, then what this is telling us is this was a really, really powerful beast. Five times that of everyone else. And if the vision does in fact correspond to the vision in chapter 2, then this beast would represent the Roman Empire, which was considerably different from the three that preceded it. Rome um, was, was just off the charts when it came to brutality and power and longevity and influence. I mean, we still feel the influence of, of these empires. We probably feel it more with the Greek Empire and, and with uh, the Roman Empire than anything else, but we still feel their in, influence. Now, this is where we got to be careful. This is where many people start to go down the rabbit trail, okay? Don't try to figure out who the ten horns are, Okay? There are more theories on who the ten horns are than there are brands of pop, okay? They're, they're, they're all over the place. Some of them, I think, have greater weight than others. But that's not why God gave us the vision. That's not why it's recorded here in vision, or excuse me, in Daniel. Now, Rome was the dominant empire um, after uh, the previous three. But be careful because Daniel makes such a strong point of saying that this beast was unlike any others. Um, this kingdom is like no other. That's a strong statement. Because, I mean, we know that the Babylonians and the Persians and, and even the Greeks, I mean, they, they were too were ferocious. They, too, were brutal in many ways. And, and here, Daniel says, this kingdom is like no other. That this fourth beast is in a class all by itself. So it may be best to simply understand this as the last human kingdom where unrighteousness and sin and evil just reach its zenith, reach its height, its climax in the world. If it is the Roman Empire, then it seems to follow 
that the Roman Empire, which we know ended centuries ago, would seem to need to be reconstituted in some form, some fashion in the future. We just can't be dogmatic on this. Some of you are old enough to remember the hullabaloo uh, in 1981 uh, about the European Union and the Ten-Nation Confederacy. And when, when Greece entered the European Union, everybody, everybody who was on the bandwagon of looking at modern-day current events, interpreting scripture, there you go, there it is, Roman Empire reconstituted. That lasted all of about maybe three years. And then the ten-nation confederacy became 12, then 15, then 27, then 28 member countries, and then back down to 27 after Brexit. So what do you do with that? See, see, that's the danger of looking at, at, at current events and things that are happening in the here and the now and superimposing them over the Bible. It's so easy to interpret Scripture that way when we ought to be interpreting it the other way around. Sometimes we're just too cerebral when it comes to apocalyptic literature. We think too much. We're meant to feel this. Daniel's simply telling us that there is a pattern to human history, and it is anti-God. That's what he's telling us. In general, the kingdoms of this world are in opposition to God and are bent on conquest and control. Just look at Russia and China today. Look what's, what's happening today. There's nothing new. Whatever... Whoever this fourth empire is, it will make other empires look tame and benevolent by comparison. This kingdom will conquer all other kingdoms and will be ruthless in its rule and its persecution of God's people. And I got, and I'm going to tell you, I guarantee you this, that Daniel and the rest of the exiles were not sitting around thinking, gee, I wonder who the ten horns are and who's his little horn. They simply knew that this kingdom was incredibly powerful and evil. It had five times the number of horns that other animals had, and it had teeth of iron. So we come now to the little horn. A terrifying man, I believe. Verse 8, we read, and I considered the horns, and behold, oops, didn't put that verse in there. Hope you brought your Bibles. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So this verse describes the 11th horn, and it describes them as a little horn. So it has a small beginning, but it grows and it emerges from the other 10. And three of the others are plucked up from the roots. And if we're correct that the horns represent power and authority, then it would stand to reason that this little horn is a person or persons or a group who come out of 
this other group, this group of 10. And of course, that 10 horns is the fourth creature, the fourth beast or the fourth empire. And this little horn becomes more powerful than any of them. And notice how the horn is described. It has the eyes and the mouth of a man. And he is full of pride because he boasts of great things. And though we can't be absolutely sure, it sounds very much like the man of lawlessness that the Apostle Paul writes about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This individual is the personification of evil. He exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. He takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, there are historical figures. I, I don't want to get into it this morning, but there are some historical figures that fit this bill. Um, and there's strong arguments um, that it, it may be, in fact, referring to them. I'll let you do your own study, draw your own conclusions. But this is what James Montgomery Boyce said. He says, this seems to be the first biblical reference to the individual later described in the Bible as the Antichrist. He appears in 2 Thessalonians 2 as the man of lawlessness who is doomed for destruction. And he is seen again in the book of Revelation. Again, we need humility here. God did not give us Daniel chapter 7 so that we could decode it. He gave it to us so that we would feel it. Daniel 7 is an incredible chapter. It's probably the, the, the most important chapter in the book. And God wants us to feel the weight of everything that is happening here so that we might turn to God and take shelter under the, under the, 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 the wings of the Almighty. That's what he wants us to do. Rise of the Beasts is not a movie, though it could be. Might be. Maybe it was one of those B-rated movies back in the 70s. But it's real life. <clears throat> Daniel 7 is telling us where human history is going. It's telling us that we need to prepare for what's coming even if we're not around when it comes. We need to rely on the God of Daniel and be courageous like Daniel, as we encounter our trials and our tribulations, which are only going to increase as time goes on. Thus far, Daniel has had an incredible glimpse into the future, but it is nothing compared to what he's about to see and disclose to us. As terrifying as these beasts were, he is about to reveal a part of his vision that is even more incredible, more astonishing, more breathtaking, and certainly more comforting than anything he has seen thus far. But for that, 
you'll have to come back next week. For now, just remember, in the end, God wins, and so do we. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. And again, I thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you that in giving it to us, Lord, we can know you better. We can love you more. And Lord, we do want to run to you, our strong tower, our refuge, our fortress. We want to take shelter under your wings. And Lord God, we trust you to do what is good and what is right. And Father, we pray that you would continue to build your kingdom for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.